Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I am Joan Nesterook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about films from a feminist lens and often highlight women in front of and behind the camera. And I am so excited for this particular episode that we're doing today. Previously, Lindsay and I had decided that we were going to share a list with each other of movies that I have seen, movies that she has seen, but that each other has not seen of their movies, if that makes any sense. And movies that were teen favorites of each of ours. Teen favorites. And last episode, we did a movie that I had not seen, Jawbreaker, which was a lot of fun. And this week, we are doing a movie that I saw probably as a 18 or 19-year-old at the end of my teenage years called Tender Mercies. And I'm very excited to dive into this today with Lindsay and find out all of her thoughts about it. And oh boy, do I have thoughts. <laughs> da, 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 da. So, so before we get into the like what the film is about and all of that jazz, I want to know, Joe, why you liked this movie so much as a teen. Like, What did it do for you? How did you feel about it when you first saw it? And where did you first see it? Did you go to the theater to see it? Give me, paint a picture for me. Okay, so first of all, let me just come into this by saying I'm 58 years old. This has been a long time ago that I saw this movie. So I was sitting there thinking, like, when, where did I first see this? For some reason, I'm thinking I somehow saw it at a theater, which seems maybe like I didn't because it had a very limited release. But I could see this being released in Alabama because of its subject content. So I I can honestly just not recollect the exact moment that I sat down and saw it, but I have a theater setting in my head. So forgive me for not knowing exactly, but I have also thought, why did this film touch me so much? And I think that that probably hits on several reasons. Number one, the subject matter of the film included a lot of religious, evangelical religion references, and that is the type of church that I grew up in. So I think I could identify with some of that. I'm not saying at the time that I saw it, because I know by the time I saw this, I had kind of turned my back on religion, but I was familiar with the experiences. So I do believe that I felt that I could feel some empathy for these people around their lives and how they were incorporating religion in their lives. So I feel like that was a familiar point for me. And at the time, it was something just very different that had come out. It was not widely released. It wasn't widely promoted. And I remember it just kind of gaining traction on its own. And I believe that that appealed to me. And it was something different, pretty different at the time of a film that is such a quiet film to come forward. So that was just some of the things that I was thinking about of why did this film touch me so much at that time. That makes sense. I think if it's an experience you can relate to in some way, it probably makes the film more evocative. And I'm assuming a lot of the characters in the film, you could maybe relate to people that you've met in your life or that you knew in Alabama. Is that accurate or am I off base? No, I would say that that is accurate. This movie is based on country music. And I have to say, I. And please do not hate me for this, but I am not a huge country music fan. I never have been. Even being from Alabama, I just never have been. So the music, the country music part and the Western part wasn't really something I could relate to that much. 
but I could relate to small town. I could re relate to the Southern people. I did grow up in an evangelical church. A lot of their experiences that they show in the church, I could relate to. I could relate to alcoholism in a family. So there were many different factors that I could relate to at the time. So I, th I do believe that at the time I really felt like it was some type of groundbreaking film and that it was showing reality. You know, it felt like a slice of life instead of some big budget Hollywood production. It just felt like that the camera had zoomed in on the life of this man and I was seeing it unfold. That makes sense to me. I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording and so many of the other movies that were made the same year, even me having not been alive at the time when this movie <laughs> came out. So I, I obviously can't relate to it that way, but just looking and seeing the other films that came out, which were like The Outsiders, Risky Business, Flashdance, Scarface. I've seen those movies. So I can look at those and say, okay, those were radically different movies than this movie. I can kind of understand how if you were watching popular movies at the time and then you saw this which wasn't necessarily a popular movie at the time but it did get academy award nominations so it was of a higher caliber in the cultural imagination i guess i can see how this would be an outlier and how this would interest you just as something new and as something different that you don't typically see from hollywood Right, and I, I was also intrigued. I do remember this because I have always liked Robert Duvall. And I believe one of the performances that I had seen him in not too many years before this was Apocalypse Now. I actually went to the theater and saw Apocalypse Now. I believe I was like, oh my God, I don't even know, 16 or 17 <laughs> when I went to see that film. And that film was wild. It was like something I had never seen before. And there were so many crazy characters in it. But I remember Robert Duvall played a crazy character and he wasn't even on screen that much, but he really stood out to me in that film. So I think that I was very curious when I knew that also he was a part of this film. I just remember wanting to see the film also because he was in it. Yeah, and I will say, I've seen some Robert Duvall movies, not a ton. I was looking at his filmography and was like, there are a lot I haven't seen. And the ones I have seen are the popular ones, I would say, like To Kill a Mockingbird, True Grit. Um, what else have I seen? Uh, the, the Francis Ford Coppola films, The Godfather, The Conversation, Network. So I've seen, I think, his bigger ones but there's a lot that I haven't seen and of what I have seen I would say that this is my favorite performance of his to me he really and people say this in interviews and usually when I hear it I'm like eh whatever that kind of sounds like bullshit but it really does feel like he becomes this character when I watched him in interviews after I was almost it was like disconcerting to see him not be Max Sledge in the interviews did you feel that way oh definitely I do feel like his performance, whether you love the movie or hate it, and for all of its problems that we will be talking about, yeah. I do feel like he gave an Academy Award worthy, if you count the Academy Award as being anything anymore, but I do believe that he deserved it. He won it that year out of nowhere, and I do believe that he deserved it because he flawlessly became that character. For me, every character, good or bad, I mean, I know that every character wasn't fleshed out the way that it should be, but I feel like there was some tremendous acting in the movie. I think so, too. I would say that maybe this is going to be sacrilege. I know people really like Horton Foote, who wrote the screenplay of this movie and also won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. I really don't think this is a very good screenplay. It didn't blow me away. The writing to me was kind of 
basic and sparse and it more in the directing, I think, is what brought the movie together from a technical perspective for me. But the acting really, I think if anybody else had been cast in that Robert Duvall character, I can't see this film working as well because you're not really like this isn't really a plot driven movie. And it's also not really a character driven movie in the sense that the characters are super rounded and developed and you really feel like you understand what makes them tick. I would say you really kind of don't. But the performances by Robert Duvall and Tess Harper and Betty Buckley and even oh, who else is a standout? Wilford Brimley. Yeah, Wilford Brimley. Without those, I feel like you wouldn't really get a lot of nuance to the characters just from the writing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know this movie, what I have read afterwards, what I did was my normal thing. I have not seen this movie in years. I went back and watched it, did some research, watched it again. And from what I've read, it was intentionally meant to to be sparse. But at the same time, I do feel like there could have been, a lot of times you can develop character without having a whole shit ton of dialogue. So I kind of agree with you on Horton Foote. I mean, it seems, I think I saw an interview with him where he was talking about this was different. This was like the first time he wrote something from scratch. Yeah. So I don't know if that had something to do with it. And it was originally going to be something about a young man trying to make it in the music business and an executive somewhere at Fox was like, oh, you should insert an old man in there. And then that idea took off. And he said he did not write it for Robert Duvall. But I think at some point in the writing, he put Robert Duvall in that role. Like, I think that towards the end, it got geared for that. Uh, for Robert Duvall. And I, I agree with you. I think without Robert Duvall, we would not even be talking about this film. I do believe that he he breathed the life into the film just with his acting and how he was Max Ledge, for sure. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I would also say, so the cinematography done by Russell Boyd is not showy. You wouldn't see this film and be like, oh, my God, amazing cinematography. But I think you would see it and you would say, oh, the sparse measured cinematography really does add to the tone of the film. It really enhances the silent moments, the moments where characters are contemplative, the moments where they're just kind of quietly talking about nothing in particular. There are a lot of these wide shots. There are a lot of shot reverse shots during conversations, but then also you see sometimes like a wider shot, more of a farther away shot or like a medium shot, and you'll hear voiceover as characters talk. So sometimes he does this thing where he kind of puts you in the conversation and then removes you and puts you on the periphery, even though you still hear it. So it kind of creates this interesting like spectatory on the periphery of these people's lives feel that I think it adds to it and almost kind of improves the lack of deep character development. I don't know if that makes sense, but I guess just what I'm trying to say is the cinematography does in many subtle ways add to what the film is trying to do, and I think it it should be commended for that. Absolutely. I agree. I think you said it quite well. And I'm wondering because also Russell Boyd did Picnic at Hanging Rock and I am in no way comparing these two films because, let me just say, Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975, I think, when that came out, that is one of my all-time favorite films in my life. I love that film. Yeah. I feel like a lot of that cinematography didn't have tons of dialogue, and it was something where the cinematography and just the way they shot it, it was almost a quiet eeriness, and just it put a sense uh I almost felt like a sense of dread, even when nothing bad was happening. And I feel like maybe that's why they reached out to him, because they had this idea of this is going to be a sparse film. I don't know. But yeah. I found it interesting that, that he was brought in to do this. Yeah, I could see that. 
And we said, what do we say? Picnic at, Picnic at Hanging Rock is 1975, do we think? Let's see. I think 74. Yeah. 75. 1975. And then this film is 1983. So just to give you some sense of, of timeline, I guess at this point we should also probably tell you what the film is about. <laughs> probably <laughs> gathered a lot of it uh, just from our conversation thus far, but just to flesh it out a little bit more, it's about a former successful country music singer named Max Sledge, played by Robert Duvall, who lost everything in his life due to alcohol. You kind of, through conversations, figure out that he used to be really successful, both writing and singing, more so writing, and then his love of Applejack <laughs> led to him losing his success and when you meet him when the film first opens he and a friend are staying in a motel they're getting drunk and they're fighting and the proprietor of the motel rosa lee played by tess harper and her young son sonny played by alan hubbard are watching from their porch and the next day when mac wakes up hungover he realizes that his friend skipped out and didn't pay the bill so he offers to work for Rosalie in order to pay her back for the room. She agrees, but she tells him that he can't drink while he's working there. And this kickstarts a slow streak of recovery and sobriety. And Mac ends up marrying Rosalie, starts writing music again, and then things kind of go from there. And it's the kind of movie it's not really very plot driven more slice of life at arm's length character study about max quiet redemption and other than him we already kind of mentioned but betty buckley plays his successful country star ex-wife named dixie and the screenplay as we mentioned is written by horton foot who had previously won best adapted screenplay for to kill a mockingbird in 1962 well, that's about it. That's it right there. And you know, we did not mention Ellen Barkin. I believe this was her first feature film, if I'm correct in that, like her first major role. I think she had like a bit part as a hippie and up in smoke. But yeah. it was also Tess Harper's first feature film. Right. And I thought Ellen Barkin did very well for the small amount of screen time that she had. That was another thing that I found interesting in research is there were many more scenes between Ellen Barkin as Max, Max's daughter, Sue Ann, but they were cut from the film. And Ellen Barkin said, I was not even told that all of this was going to be sliced and diced on the floor. I didn't know it until I saw the premiere and she kept thinking to herself, okay, well, maybe they've moved the scene to here to there. So she was pretty shocked at just the small amount of screen time that she had. And I can't help but think if maybe the movie was just 10 minutes longer and we could have seen more interaction between her and Mac. Maybe there would have been a little more clarification, a little more in-depth on both of them, a little more empathy about what eventually happens in the film with them. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth over whether it would have added anything or not, because as we'll get to discussing, the, the women characters in the film are very of a type and meant to serve Mac's redemption narrative. So I don't like the way that that character is used. And I don't know that I would have, I don't know that showing me more of it would have made any difference in how I felt about it. Because I don't think the film is really, I don't think the film is really interested in going deep on child of an alcoholic and what that does to a person, or in Dixie's case, wife of an alcoholic and what that does to a person. These are more just like rigid archetypes of women who suffer men's misgivings and then must get cast aside. Right. So if they had showed more of it, more of her and Mac. I don't know if they would have done it in a way that I felt added anything to the character, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. They definitely, you had your woman, typical woman roles of Dixie, who basically 
got Mac out of her life, went on to become a successful performing woman. She never remarried. She was successful. And they could have really done something so cool with her character, but I feel like they did put her into the devil role of she's still so embittered, which she had the right to be because apparently when he was drunk, he tried to kill her. And she's hysterical. She gets hysterical a lot and she has to take booze and pills to keep going. And I'm not saying that she could have been the perfect character, but once again, then it goes back to Tess Harper, who is the religious savior that comes in quietly and supports him and and takes care of him and and does her wifely duty of re- helping him to redeem or redeeming him by being the good woman that supports him. And they could have done something completely different with her character as well. So there's there's definitely not a ton of development in the way that looking now from 1983 and then looking now in 2022 I definitely see the flaws of this film and how for it to have been promoted as being so groundbreaking and a slice of real life it just was very disappointing in the way that it presented the women in the film and I think, too, and I have to keep reminding myself of this because my impulse is just to be like, well, fuck this movie. It doesn't do what I want it to, and I don't care about it, so whatever. <laughs> Let's not think deeply about it. But I think it is important to think about how, at the time, this was very much the norm. And this is even still very much the norm for big Hollywood productions today. So this film did a lot of things differently. And I think it should be commended for some of those things, but it it ultimately falls back into kind of the same tired female archetypes that you see in films over and over and over again. And I think almost, at least me as a viewer, I was going into it thinking that maybe it wouldn't do that because it was making so many other deviations in tone and in acting style and just in the simplicity of the story, but it just goes where you think it will if you're thinking about all big-budget Hollywood films. It does. And honestly, the the part that got to me, the, the one thing in my youth that I, I believe bound me to the film through the religious experience When I look at it now at 58, it kind of repels me a little bit away from the film because it takes religion. It it doesn't overdo it, I guess, like it could, but it is still a moral tale of religion, which chaps my ass to (laughs) to no end because I hate that. And it does because you have the religious... Tess Harper, who saves, you have the devil, Dixie, who doesn't need a man, and she's being punished for it. And how she punished? Because her daughter, who also is not religious and and marries a drunk, and here comes a spoiler alert, she ends up getting killed in a car wreck. And, And you know why? Because she deserved it, because you always have to kill off the women that do bad things. And that is something from the beginning of time and stories and everything, where when women don't do what they should, they always have to die. Yeah. And I feel like that that was just a tired old thing that Horton pulled out and used it. And I, I, that part I didn't like. Now, it did bring an emotional kick to the film when his daughter is unexpectedly killed in a car wreck. For me, it did. I mean, I couldn't help but feel like I hated her death. And I feel like that a lot of emotions came from that. But I don't know that anything was resolved by that. This reminds me of one really fucked up thing that I noticed when I rewatched the film. So, okay, this does relate to what you're saying, I promise. It just might take me a while to get there. (laughs) That's all right, girl. There's that scene where Sue Ann, Mac's daughter, comes to see him for the first time. And when she's about to leave, she tells him, 
there was this song that he used to sing to her as a kid, and it was something about a dove, and does he remember it? And he says that, no, he doesn't remember it. And then she leaves. And then when she leaves, you see Mac looking out the window, and he's singing the song that he told her he didn't remember ever singing to her. And you and I talked about that, and we were like, well, why would he tell her that he didn't remember? Is it because he feels guilty about the relationship? Is it because he feels strange being vulnerable in front of her? Like, what is going on there? Uh, So on my rewatch, I realized that when he was singing it and when he was looking out the window, he was looking at Rosalie and Sonny, who were walking outside in the field having a conversation. So when he was singing that song, he was looking at his new family and to me, it almost felt like it was signifying that these are his new family. These are the people that get the best parts of him. These are the people that get this dove song, not his former daughter, who he is now, even though he's kind of reconnecting with her, he's still disconnected from her. And that to me was kind of like, like blew my mind a little bit. And I don't know. Of course, I don't know if that was the intention of the scene, but that was definitely on rewatch how I viewed it and how I interpreted it. Hmm, that's interesting. I've never thought about that because in the scene, Rosalie and Sonny, who are the new wife and the new stepson, and Sonny's probably what, like nine? I think he's nine in the yeah, middle. Yeah, I would say. They clear out of the house because this house is literally like three rooms, and they clear out of this house and go walking across in a field to give them privacy. And so that is where Mac, as he watches his daughter leave, yes, I'm sure, because there's a scene that shows Sonny and his mom, Rosalie, talking, and they turn around and watch the daughter leaving. She hops in her 79 Trans Am or whatever it is and takes yeah. off. So that could be it. I mean, that definitely could be it. I used to ask myself that, like, why didn't he, especially when she dies, it kind of hits you like he had the opportunity to say, oh, I remember that song and to sing it to her then and make some type of connection. And I, and I was thinking, well, he's never faced up to anything in his life. He's always just kind of wanted to leave his past behind. So he couldn't face up to singing that song to her out of guilt or something. But he did try to seek her out to have some type of relationship. So, yeah, that that could be it. You know what? I also realized, again, like on rewatch, I noticed a lot of things I missed the first time. When he goes to see Dixie and ostensibly also to see Sue Ann, he's really going there because he wants to give his song to Dixie or to her manager to see if she'll sing it because he's written this song. I feel like his motivation for going there was to get the song to Dixie, not even to see Sue Ann, because then do you remember there's that scene with Rosalie, who's she's doing the ironing, and Mac comes back from the concert and she's jealous because he's gone to see his ex-wife perform. And they have a conversation about it, and it's a really contentious conversation. And Rosalie presses him, and she's like, well, if you went there to see your daughter, I can understand that. Like, you can just tell me that. And he gives her some kind of vague answer. I forget what he says, but it's basically like the TLDR is like, it's none of your fucking business why I went or why I didn't, and I'll tell you when I feel like it. And then he storms off. But the whole reason, I think, why he didn't want to tell her and also why he went there in the first place was to get the song to Dixie. Not even, I mean, maybe seeing his daughter was also part of his motivation, but I think it was more for himself. I think it was more a selfish thing. Yes, he did. he's definitely selfish. I don't know if that was the intention of him to be portrayed like that, but he is selfish because he just expects to move on and not have to deal with or make any amends for the people left in his wake. It almost just seems like they were collateral and he's just, he doesn't want to face them. So it could very well be that, hey, yes, I, I don't really want to have a connection again with my daughter because it brings back every horrible thing that I ever did and I may have to face it. 
And my intention is, is I'm moving forward. I'm not looking in the rearview mirror to hell with these people. That was in my past. It was all because I was drunk, but I'm, I'm going forward. And that would make sense that as he looks out on his fam, on his new family, that he sings that as a sealing, sealing the fate of what's in the past is in the past. Don't want anything to do with it. I'm going forward, which is fucked up, but yeah, that definitely does make sense. Yeah, and we read, I will, if I can, I'll link this in the show notes. I found it on JSTOR, so I don't actually know. I'll have to look at the terms and conditions and see if it's legal to share it. But it's uh, an article, it's an analysis of the film written by a sociology professor named Norman K. Denzen. And he does a really good job. So he both does a close reading of the film from a sociological perspective, and then he also does one from a feminist perspective. And I thought that a lot of what he had to say about the women in the film was really pretty smart. And he did a good job of laying out the way that the archetypes are used to serve Mac. And he, I thought, did a particularly good job talking about how the family structures were set up in order to have one overtake the other. So to have Mac's old family of Dixie and Sue Ann become replaced by his new family of Rosalie and Sonny. And he talks a lot about how, I'll just read you this one tiny snippet, because I think it does a good job of setting up the structure of this. He says, The three women in the film are positioned within two categories, which may variously be termed good and evil, sacred and profane, respectable and not respectable in the center of society and on the fringes. And then he cites another scholar who notes this is a typical characterization of women in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And I thought that that was interesting because it shows how the overarching religion of the film, which when you watch it, you don't feel, or I did not feel that it was that insidious or like shoved down your throat in any real way it almost just to me felt more like a part of who the characters are and how they live their lives mm -hmm. but it's interesting because those judeo-christian traditions or ideas permeate the female characters in the film so like rosa is the good woman who goes to church and believes in god and dixie is the one who is making her money performing and living ostentatiously and spoiling her child and he goes into this really deeply, and if, if I can, I will link it. But I think that it's interesting to think about those characters as being a more insidious representation of religion than the overtly religious scenes in the film. Yes, I agree with that. that, that that's a, a great insight. I hope we are able to link that article because I know you shared it with me and I read it, and it's great on so many levels of how these roles of women are portrayed. And it's, what did it say? Didn't the article say this really isn't a film about alcoholism? Like it is about alcoholism, but it's really more about how the women are portrayed and how the patriarchy steps in and dictates how everyone has to be. And how this film picks up on that, basically, and just reiterates it. and. We are so brainwashed. Even me, I'm, I'm co constantly deprogramming myself of accepting that this is the way that it should be. And it, it's a comfortable place to stay and to try to feel good because you're given these images. So I, I feel like that that does highlight something that's really fucked up in our society and probably a part of the religion that is the worst part. <laughs> Yeah, the part of religion that tells women that they're just meant to be witnesses to the lives of men. That to me is, I, I think if I were to sum up the, I don't know, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say if I was going to sum up all the problems of religion in one sentence, that would be it. But it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more complicated than that. But I do think that what religion does, and to, to me what makes it most problematic, is how it suppresses women and how it puts them into little narrow boxes and how it moralizes certain actions 
And really, it just creates a, a rigid way of living and a rigid way of looking at the world in black and white terms, especially, especially for women, and especially as popular religion has developed and most definitely the shit we're dealing with now and how it's infiltrated politics and just spun completely out of control. But I do think it's interesting to see how it impacts the female characters in this film. To me, I guess that's the most interesting thing about the film. And that's the reason why, even though I'm not like, oh, this film had a deep impact on me as it as it did on you when you saw it as a teen, I still feel like it's worth watching just to see how it does these things. Because I think it's surprising and I think it's worth thinking about how it takes these ideas and subtly infuses every aspect of the film with them to the point where unless you were really thinking deeply about it, I don't think you really would notice. Oh, absolutely. As a 19-year-old, I would have never thought about this. I would have thought, oh, this is real life. I would have never thought about how it impacted the female characters. I would have never thought about how is religion playing upon them? How is religion playing upon me? How are they using religion to suppress these women? How are they using them to keep them as one-dimensional characters? I mean, it really just robs a lot of, it, it robs so much from all of us. Even today, I think I was telling you, and, and I think maybe you even mentioned this too, when we were researching, it was hard for me to find anything negative about this film. Yeah. Even people that are writing stuff about it still currently, men or women, everything was a glowing review. So I think, and Lindsay, you had made this remark earlier when we were speaking that the quietness of the film and the way that it's presented as a thoughtful look made you even dislike it more because it, it, it cloaked the horrible lessons that it was teaching us. You know, it was like a, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Instead of just being more blatant out there, it packaged it up as this tale of redemption. And it's so easy just to get sucked into that and to go along with it. And that little bit of brainwashing goes on and you don't even realize it. Yeah. Absolutely, I think. And again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm shitting all over this film because I don't think that it's any worse than any other. I don't think the the women characters are not any worse than any other women characters that were popularized in the 80s. Let's just say I don't think this film is an anomaly. I don't think it's like, oh, Tender Mercies treats its female characters so horribly. No, I think it was pretty standard for the time. But yeah, there is something about the film, di the film like diverting my expectations in a, in a lot of other ways that made me think, oh, maybe it will do it in the way that it treats its female characters. But it doesn't. It's just, you know, the same old bullshit just packaged and presented to you in a different fashion. And I think that can be more deadly when something is more above board. You can recognize it a lot easier, but when it's packaged as this is a thoughtful, insightful film, and this is the way people really are. It kind of hits home. Yeah. Oh, yes, I should, you know, you, you know, it's like the music playing by me, by me, <laughs> and you don't realize it. It's that type of situation. So, yeah, that was more of an eye opener for me. And when I watched it the second time, here recently, which I would think maybe I've seen it more than just the one time I saw it. I've probably saw snippets or something over the years. I don't know. But to really sit down and just watch this film, it was kind of disappointing a little bit for me. I probably still find a, a few more redeeming things maybe than you, I would think, just because of my experiences and how I'm programmed in, but I definitely um, eyes were open to the many problems with the way that the characters are portrayed in the film that I didn't realize when I was young. Yeah, I think it's not that I don't find, I guess I, there are some redeeming qualities to this film. As I said, I think the cinematography is really good. I feel like this film and actually, a lot of films or TV shows I see that take place in Texas, 
really make Texas landscapes appealing to me. There's something about those empty shots of a single car coming down the road, of wind whipping up the dust, of people just being tiny little specks in the middle of a field that I find really appealing and alluring and make me want to live that kind of life almost in some other alternate reality. So I like those aspects of it. I like that it doesn't try to be super showy. I think Robert Duvall's performance is great. I think that Betty Buckley's performance is great, albeit, again, she's written a little over the top and borders into hysteria territory at times, but that's not really her performance so much as it is the writing and the directing, so I feel not really able to fault her there. But yeah, there there are some things I, I like about this film, and I think it's worth watching to think about the female characters on a deeper level. And it's not an unenjoyable watch. I don't think you would go into it and you would feel like you were suffering for this film is what, like 90 something minutes. I don't think you would be like, oh, like looking at your watch and wondering when it's going to be over. It has enough things going on that make it a worthwhile story, slice of life picture, maybe even inspirational for somebody who's working on a project that is more bare bones in its storytelling approach. So I think it has utility. Um, there are reasons to watch it. But from a walking, walking away from this film, feeling something or thinking something deeper about society or life or people and their psychology, no, it, it to me it didn't really give any of those things. And those are probably, I guess, the things I value most in a film as a viewer. And I think that's all valid points. Definitely valid. I think for me, it is a very, and I kept hearing this of the characters weren't developed enough and it was hard to feel empathetic with them. I think I probably had more empathy with the characters just from the standpoint of maybe being where I was at the first time I saw it, just my life experiences. And a lot of times, I don't know, a lot of times I'm drawn to movies that are very minimalist because I have a, a bad tendency of if something isn't filled in, I'll just project whatever I think it should be in there <laughs> in my thoughts. Yeah. So maybe I did a lot of that, you know, of where. I project myself in there, and it's kind of like a narcissistic thing that I do. But I have seen films that do not have a ton of dialogue that still were able to convey a lot more than this film. That's for sure. So I would say a lot of what you said I definitely agree with. I definitely do agree that, I mean, Robert Duvall makes the film for me. I, I do love him as an actor and, and respect him very much. So I would say, yeah, I mean, give it a shot. Maybe you'll like it better than you think, or maybe you'll hate it a lot worse than you think you would. I think it's something that, that would be an interesting study from a lot of different standpoints if you, if you watched it today. They definitely had some wonderful actors portraying the characters. They had a successful director, great people behind the scenes that helped them. The art director was Janine Opewall, and I believe she, uh, I, her, it just stuck out to me because I just felt like looking at what you said, the stark landscape and being out in the middle of nowhere, and even the decorations on the inside of the house, like one thing I noticed was like there was these ceramic praying hands on the wall, and I think my grandmother had those in her in her house you know so there was so many authentic touches that it it made me look her up and she she has quite also the uh history i think she's been nominated four different times for an oscar for art direction i don't think she's ever won but she did like sea biscuit and she did la confidential so they they really had a lot of people behind the scenes bringing forth that feeling. I felt like the cinematography for me added a lot to it. I felt like all of those touches, it did feel like a real place. Even though in reality, there was no Mariposa Hotel 
I found it interesting too, they called it the mariposa because that's Spanish for butterfly, which is another rebirth redemption narrative. So that's good. That's a good little tidbit. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, Janine Openwall was the one that came up with that. Apparently, when they were scouting for it, the director told him, my only thing is, wherever we're going to place this motel, there has to be no other buildings around it. It has to be the only thing in a vast setting. And when they were in, I don't know, it was Wachahatchee, Texas or something, they they found this old abandoned home. There wasn't a gas station there. They said that they went up, they found the owner and went up and said, hey, we want to kind of turn this into a gas station type thing. And he just handed them the keys and they're like, well, don't you want a written agreement? And he's like, that's not how we do things out here, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was kind of a cool story. But I do feel like that the film has a lot of things going for it. It would deserve a watch today for, for many different reasons. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that other film that you recommended that we watched, Baghdad Cafe, the yes. Adlin film. It not so much in themes or plot or character, but just in setting. Like Baghdad Cafe, which is a place in the film, reminded me of the Mariposa Motel from what I can remember. And just the way that that film was shot with those like wide shots reminded me of tender mercies as well i thought those would be if you're going to do like a double screening you could do tender mercies you could do baghdad cafe and you could even do that other film you made me watch uh places in the heart with sally field it reminds me of that too i think is that does that film take place in texas where is that yeah oh yeah oh my gosh is it it texas it's the same it's also waxahachie texas is that how you say it waxahachie Okay, I need therapy because <laughs> you are definitely that a pattern here. Yeah. I'm seeing a pattern I never knew. I'm going to have to go back and reexamine my entire life right now of why <laughs> I, I've only driven through the panhandle of Texas and could not get out of there fast enough when yeah. I was in my 20s. And now I'm like, did I have another life there? Why am I driving? That's Maybe true because I made you watch all these films. I don't know. And what's where, I think Baghdad Cafe is not in Texas. I forget. Somewhere in the desert, though. I think is it in California somewhere, but it feels like Texas. I can it tell does. you that. It could be. If you just saw a shot of it you and you guessed Texas, I think that would be right on the money. It's like the same kind of desolate, dusty type place. And I do love that film. I don't. I don't know why, but there's just something. I know it's got quirky problems with it and... But I just, there's something about that film that I love. I I don't know. I'm going to definitely have to try to hash this out and see why. Yeah. Why I'm drawn to that. I know you'll have to think of what else is on your list that fits into this category. Like small town, middle of nowhere, people trying to figure their shit out, I guess. Would that kind of be how you describe it? I'm going to go in there and and quietly in the middle of the night remove it if it's in there. Yeah. Oh, I didn't have that on there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know that's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know why I would be drawn to that, but I mean, I did grow up in a small town, but it wasn't like that. I was near big big towns. I wasn't that far out, but maybe that's it. Maybe it's yeah. the part of uh wanting to be it's almost something about being in a desolate landscape that causes you to I guess live more inward. Maybe, maybe because I'm just kind of a shy, inward person. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Anyway, I'll get into therapy and I'll let everybody know what I find out. (laughs) Yeah. I think the only other thing, well, there might be more, but the only other thing I can think of that I thought was maybe worth digging into a little bit more is the film's treatment of alcoholism and recovery. And again, I don't know how much I personally have to say about this that is valuable because I'm not a specialist in this area. And I feel like somebody who is would probably have really insightful things to say. And the article that I previously mentioned, written by the sociologist, he does go into some of the film's portrayal of alcoholism. So I think that's that's worth watching. But just from like personal experience and comparison to other films, 
do you feel like this film did anything different? What do you think it says about an alcoholic? How do you think it treats Mac and his recovery? Was there anything that stood out to you that this film did that maybe other films didn't do or that you thought was particularly interesting? Well, from that standpoint, this film seemed to skip in time a lot. It almost seemed like things happened very quickly, and there was only very subtle references, like you realize that months had gone by. I think that it kind of treated his alcoholism as if something easy to overcome. I could be wrong about that, but it just seemed like this film fast-forwarded through whatever angst he went through. And I read, I think in that article, it said that they actually showed this film to recovering alcoholics. Yeah. And I just have to wonder, is this not giving a message to them like, this should be easy. You should just be able to pray it away, pray it away, pray away your alcohol. It didn't really show him having, once again, he didn't have to reconcile. He was just able to skip right through his alcoholism and somehow just just quit drinking. So I think that the film probably trivialized that a little too much for me. I had a grandfather that was an alcoholic. I never knew him. He died when my mom was 14. But from the horror stories that I heard about him and from the things that I saw my mom do because she was a child of an alcoholic, I can tell you there are tons of repercussions. So I just felt like the whole subject of alcoholism was trivialized, in my opinion, for the necessary story to move forward. They didn't really talk about it a lot. And honestly, the only time that Mac did have a relapse on alcoholism was when they told him his song wasn't any good the new song he'd written. It wasn't about, I fucked my life up. I tried to kill my wife. My daughter doesn't want to see me. It was like, oh my God, they rejected my new song. And he got all mad and went out and he didn't, he bought the booze, but he poured it out. But I don't know. I just feel like that it did not show the true horrors of what alcoholism are all about and probably whitewashed it a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there's something like it makes it it doesn't even okay. the interesting thing about this film is it doesn't even make it like you would think maybe that religion comes into his life and saves him or that that it's a big push for why he gets sober, but it's really not. And it's more so his relationship with Rosalie, I guess. That's sort of what the film anchors his sobriety in because Mac writes all these songs where the lyrics are, um, oh, I had one that was like, I found especially problematic. I know I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, Let's see. Okay, it was the song he writes about Rosalie. It's the song that he initially tries to give to Dixie and her and her manager are like, it's a piece of shit. But then it ends up getting popularized and has some success with this band. But so the lyrics are, if you'll just stand beside me, if you'll just hold the ladder on the way, I'll climb to the top. I'll love you all the way. Which, like, how fucked up is that? It's basically telling Rosalie, you hold the ladder and you keep me steady and I'll climb on top of you and I'll reach success. But I need your stability to get me there. It's like a very, very, ooh, Jesus Christ type look at what a relationship is and what their relationship is. So, yeah, it's, again, using her as this wholesome Christ-like figure who, again, she's almost more the stand-in for religion. Like, religion isn't used as his impetus to get sober, but Rosalie, who is the stand-in character archetype for religion, is... So it's like, even though you think it's not religion that's doing it, it is religion that's doing it. I guess that's what I mean about how the film is like insidious with religion. Yeah, because you know her character, if you you could go back and do a character study on her character, she was raised in church. She was raised to save people. She was raised to be a witness, to bring people forward. So automatically, as a woman, she feels like... and. 
there is no doubt about it that women are second place in churches. So many religions restrict women on what they can do. Eve came from Adam's rib, all this bullshit Mm -hmm. that people act like, I'm an idiot because I love to go up and hug trees, but yet God snapped his fingers out of Adam's rib and there was a woman. It's just so, oh my God, it is so horrible at what you're willing to accept. So Rosalie's character had been spoon-fed this bullshit her whole life, so that probably did cloud her judgment on, should I take this man into my home? But I'm sure she felt that underlying pressure for him to be saved. Yeah. You could see the gladness on her face. There was a baptismal scene, which, oh, my God, really resonated with me because I have seen that scene so many times as a kid of people getting getting baptized. And she was pleased about it. And I, I think to herself, she thought to herself, I, I brought a soul to God. I've saved him. Yeah. Do they actually do that where they have a in this in the film? It's like a bath almost it's like a trough of water and they dip you the whole way back into it yes originally i was in the methodist church and the methodist just would bring you forward and take water in a little bowl and put it on your head but the baptist i did go to a baptist church for many years and they had the duncan tank right up Theirs was above the choir loft with the big light on it, and they would pull back the curtains and bring people out, and the people were wearing robes, and you got dunked, and everybody said, amen, amen, and they walked off. That scene was very, very realistic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I got baptized in the Methodist church, and it was just like a bowl that they, like you said, they like touched your head with some water or something. Right. So I've never that- seen that before. Yeah, that's how I was baptized. But the Baptists took it in. Baptists believe you were real sinful. You got to go all the way under. (laughs) (laughs) Really got just a little water dripping on your head. You got to go. You got to get down. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it works. The deeper you get, the more your sins are cleansed. That's it. Cool. That is it. So I don't know. This, uh, This film brought up a lot of different feelings in me. Kind of a... I guess it's kind of like being waken up in the matrix, being waken up out of the pod and realizing that you're perfect, <laughs> that this perfect film that you thought was perfect is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I kind think- of wishing you could go back in the pod and it'd be perfect, but you know that there's no going back because your eyes have been opened. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's happened to me a lot of times. I would say probably more with books than with movies so far, but. Anything I used to really like when I was in high school that I tried to revisit just was not as good. I'm always disappointed. I think it's just a product of age sometimes, like something you really like that resonates with you when you're a teenager. If enough time passes and you grow enough as a person, you're going to look back on it and you're going to see. Oh, yeah. And especially if it was a film made in the 80s or earlier or even the 90s, like Really just, you can find something problematic from every period in time if you if you look for it. Oh, yeah. Especially the films that I've chosen, guys, just hang on, because I put the ones good and bad on my list. So there's going to be some that Lindsay watches, and she's going to get on here and go, you know what, this is going to be five minutes, because all I can say is, fuck this film, I'm out. <laughs> no, but I think it's still interesting. Okay, so here's here's where I really feel like I get a lot from watching films even if it's something I don't like I still feel like there is a utility to breaking it down thinking about what it's doing thinking about how it's doing it and thinking about why it is or isn't working for you especially if you're somebody who's interested in making films or art or anything just getting a better understanding of the mechanics and getting a better understanding of your taste I think is important and it's always good to just see different things and experience different things and even if you don't walk away from it saying oh my gosh that film changed my life it's still a good experience to think critically about it and engage with it critically and to not just passively consume something and then move on from it. I think we have a tendency in modern times with the internet and with so much being available to us to do that right? To just like binge a TV series and then wipe it from your brain. But I think it's important to try to, anything that you take the time to watch or to read or any art you try to engage with, I think it's important to really try 
to do it the justice of thinking critically about it, even if it doesn't resonate with you on a personal or deep level. Yeah, I like that. That is true. That is true. And I, I'm the worst, you know, I'm, I'm throwaway. I, I definitely, if I'm not liking something, I have a tendency to check out mentally to check out and I may find myself wandering, trying to watch it, but it is important to see why is this not working for me? Why am I being critical of this? Why does it not appeal to me? And that, that can make a film as interesting as something you like a lot of times if you're able to pick it apart like that. That's very true. I like that. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. Like, there are plenty of books that I start reading and I'm like, I know I'm not going to like this and I set it down. But that's because, I don't know, to me, reading a book is a bigger commitment than sitting through a movie. Right. Sometimes I just got to have something on to distract myself. And even if it's not amazing, I can still <laughs> get something out of it. And I think also just because I like to write about movies and it's helpful to see things that you're not in love with as well as things that you love, just, again, to have a barometer for what it is that you like and to have a better understanding of it. Exactly. And a lot of, of these films from the 80s, when I was a teenager, the late 70s, early 80s, they are going to have problems. But just just as we said with Mac, I just can't walk away and leave them. It's, it's good to examine them. And it's been a really a growth process for me. I've learned so much in just going back and watching some of these films, and and I'm actually excited about where I am now. I would never want to go back. I don't want to go back to when I'm 19. My God, oh. well, you know, maybe my energy level, but not my mindset. Yeah, in any way. And I just think that it's. I just kind of. I don't think that by realizing, okay, my initial. Feelings about this film have changed, and I see so many problems with it. I feel like it's a positive thing. It's kind of sad in a way because sometimes you idealize childhood things, and then when you're able to come face to face with them, like see an old home again or or see something, it kind of loses some of the magic. The reality comes back, and it's like it wasn't that great. So we have a tendency to to do that, and I've probably done that with some films, but. I just think, thank God, I've I, yeah. as where I am now, and I hope if I get the privilege of living another twenty or thirty precedent years, that I will even look back again and say, "Wow, I've I just want to keep going forward with it." So I like that. I like that we have to examine even the things that we don't like and find some type of relevance in that. Yeah, and I think going back to the film, you know, one of the things that we talked about before we started recording is how Mac just seems to want to move on from his alcoholism, right? He wants to have his new family who didn't really know him when he was an alcoholic, and he wants to excise the family that did know him when he was an alcoholic. And I think sometimes as people, we have a tendency to do this with ourselves and with things that we liked. Right. Like there's a tendency to kind of denigrate the person you were when you liked this thing that you now look back on and say, well, wow, that's kind of a piece of shit. But I think it's important for not only like I already talked about understanding your own taste level, but understanding who you were as a person at the time and how you have grown. Again, like I just think films are an interesting way of gauging that in, in some regard. If you really actually examine what was going on at your life, in your life at the time when this movie meant something to you, you can kind of figure out things about yourself that you might have forgotten or you might have tried to not think about or you might have buried away. And I think that they can be important for self-growth and for understanding who you are and maybe even where you still have to go. So I don't know. That's kind of like a new agey way of um, looking at it, I guess, but... I really do believe that. I think there's I think there's value in looking at things that you once liked that you maybe don't anymore and trying to figure out why. Yes. I agree with that. And it makes me curious as we go forward. And I, I don't know if we're gonna do this again right for the next episode or the next time that we pick a film and do it. I'm I'm excited to see what 
we chose to watch of each other's list and and what we found out about it. I think it'd be it's been a, just this one exercise, and that has been very interesting for me. Yeah. So if you enjoyed this this little series of us watching films we haven't seen that the other person really enjoyed, please let us know because we will keep doing it periodically. We're not going to only do this. We're going to move on to other films. And we've already talked about we're going to do an extended horror lead up to Halloween because we both like horror and we know we've got that coming hopefully pretty soon. So we have some other things we're going to do. But if you like this and you let us know, we will continue doing it over the rest of the year or however long we (laughs) we keep podcasting so leave us a review or email us let us know what you think and also if you have any films that you would be interested in hearing us talk about please let us know as well we're kind of doing this by the seat of our pants so we don't yet know what we're going to talk about next and we are very amenable to suggestions and we would we would love to hear what you recommend absolutely we would love audience participation that would be wonderful please let us know and Lindsay, the minute that you mentioned our halloween extravaganza i get so excited because the day after july 4th it's already autumn for me like my mm-hmm. mind is already going into halloween so that it's going to be a good one we've kind of, we kind of know maybe what we're going to do or how we're going to do it or maybe not but trust me I am a a horror movie lover, so that that we should have fun doing that. Yes, that's going to be really fun. We're we've already talked about how we're we're over summer. We're ready to get into Halloween. And one thing I always feel like is the older I get, the more I don't do as much to get myself in the spirit of Halloween. And I want to get back to that. So I I want us to start in like August with some <laughs> horror films. Yeah. So then we can we can be good and and ready when when it's October and it's actually horror month, the month of Halloween. Absolutely. So drop in the comments. Hey, throw the horror films out there. What's your favorite horror film? Anything. We're up for it. Let us know. D- tell us anything that you would like to hear us talk about. We are open for it. Yes. So we thank you so much for listening. We would love it if you would either leave a review on the podcast. You could email us at sup at womaninrevolt.com or you could also send us a DM on Instagram. We hope to hear from you. Thanks so much. And we will catch you on the next episode.